in our study of the Catechism, we continue through the, the uh, Apostles' Creed as it has been given us. And we come now to that Jesus, uh, well, two weeks ago, we considered that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Last week, uh, we considered uh, that he came under the curse, that he was crucified. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. And this week, he was dead and buried. Dead and buried. Now, really, the theme of these things, uh, these three sermons, is really the same. The innocent in the place of the guilty. And we see it again this week. That when we saw Jesus standing before Pilate, we saw the perfectly innocent Jesus, the most innocent man who ever lived, pronounced guilty by an earthly judge. And we saw a little picture there of what happens, the reverse for each sinner, who is guilty of having sinned against the most high majesty of God. And he's pronounced innocent because Christ steps into his place. Last week, we saw Jesus being crucified, coming under the curse, because crucifixion was especially a curse of God. And so we saw Jesus coming under our curse. The curse is lifted off of us, and it is placed on him. Jesus came under our curse. Now this time, we meet Jesus as dying. And the Catechism has asked this question, why did he have to suffer death? Why death? Why not some other punishment? Did it, was it necessary that Jesus die? Now, the Catechism has answered this question previously, and really, the answer that we're given here in question 40 is just taking us back to question 11, which we've considered some time ago, where the question was asked, but isn't God also merciful? And you can kind of see, right, that it's a similar question to, did Jesus have to die? Was there no other punishment that he could have endured? Isn't God also merciful? And the answer there given was, God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. And his justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Eternal punishment, of course, just being death. Death under body and soul. So you might say that the arrangement or the law, the justice of God, required the death of Jesus to satisfy the justice of God. Now the same truth is given us in the scripture that we read. In Genesis 2, verses 16, right? Jesus, uh, God commands Adam, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So there we have it again, right? The penalty placed upon disobedience was death. <clears throat> now, my friends, we can ask ourselves, in what sense is Jesus then subject to the penalty that God threatened to Adam? That's really the question I want to put above the sermon tonight. How is it that Jesus... has to endure a penalty that was threatened against Adam. Was Jesus subject to the same law as Adam? That's a question I'd like to consider with you tonight. And so I want to begin then by considering what does it mean to be under a law or under a covenant? Under a law or under a covenant. Now you know that uh, if you buy alcohol in the United States... 
right? They're going to ask or require that you be 21 years of age. That's the law we're under here, right? But if you should go to Canada, right, the law is different. When you go to Canada, you're under another law, which allows you to buy alcohol at age 18, if I'm, if I'm correct, and if it's still that way. And there are many things like that, right? When we're under a law, when we're under a law, when we're under a, a given covenant, that means that we are subject to the terms of that covenant, right? You could think of the same thing. Some of you men have, uh, some of you women too, have uh, a CPL, right? And when you're under Michigan law, you're, you're allowed to have your weapon upon you. And if you go to Ohio or Indiana, it's the same. But boy, does it change if you go to Illinois, doesn't it? Illinois has a different law. You come under a different set of laws when you cross the border into Illinois, especially as it pertains to something like that. So being under a law then means coming under the terms of that law. Now for myself, when I lived in Grand Rapids, I was coming home late from college one night and I decided to disregard the stop sign that was in front of me. And so I looked both ways and it was clear and I went sailing through and I barely even slowed down. And the law was right behind me. It was dark and I, I didn't see him. And I know that's wrong of me. I'm confessing it tonight, right? There it was, the law caught me, and the law issued a penalty. Now, the justice, or the judge, the officer, didn't think to himself, well, now let's see here, what kind of penalty should I apply to Mr. Inglesma for his, his, uh, his uh, transgression, right? No, it was stated, it was laid out in the law, right? And he gave me the appropriate ticket, and the penalty is spelled out for me. He didn't decide that on his own, right? The law, I was under the law of whatever may have been on the statute books at that time, and the appropriate ticket was then issued to me, and I came to uh, the penalty. Uh, I had to pay the penalty for transgressing that particular law. So all this then is what it means then to be under a law, that you agree to the terms of that law or that covenant, whatever the stipulations are for the relationship that you are entered into. And you agree both to observe the stipulations of that law and to... Uh, perform the penalty should you violate those terms. All of that is now what it means to come under the terms of a covenant. Now that's important because I move now to my second point. Because in Scripture we are taught that we also are under a law. And I give you that verse from 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22 where Paul says, that just as in Adam, all died. What does it mean to be in Adam? You see, these are scripture terms, my friends, for this concept that I just explained. To be in Adam means to come under Adam's covenant. It means to agree to the terms of Adam's covenant. Now, what are the terms of Adam's covenant? Well, we find those. In, in the text that we read in, in uh, Genesis 2, that in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now we know that the law of God is much broader than not eating from a tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? It encompasses all of God's commandments. But this is the law or the covenant that we are under. These are the terms to, we are, to which we are subject. Now because being under this law is very much a works-based law. It is merit-based. 
Theologians have often called it the covenant of works. Because under this covenant, the covenant under which we are born, you have to earn God's favor. And I want to give you the three P's, the three P's of the covenant of works. I put those in the outline there. Personal, perfect, and perpetual. That being in Adam, being subject to the terms of Adam's covenant, requires personal obedience. In other words, it has to be your own obedience, not someone else's for you. It has to be perfect. Not the least transgression is allowed. God will not brook the least compromise with his commandments. No transgression is allowed, and it has to be perpetual. It has to be all your life long. These are the terms of the covenant of works. Now, Paul also speaks of this. In fact, Paul will often speak of Adam's covenant, and he will make that, uh, he will equate the covenant of works with the covenant that Israel was under, came under at Mount Sinai. For instance, in Galatians 4 and verse 21, Paul says, Tell me, you who want to be under law. Do you hear that expression? Under law. Now, under law means to be under the law as a covenant. In other words, the terms of that covenant are the covenant of works. Perfect, personal, perpetual obedience to the law of God. No transgression allowed. And now Paul speaks to those people as being under the law. Now, when Paul speaks about being under law, he means especially being under the covenant that God made with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. So he's not talking about so much being in Adam. He, he uses that expression as well. But he also uses the expression being under the law as being under the Mosaic law, the law, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And Paul sees that covenant as a picture, as it were, of the covenant of works that God made with Adam in the garden. Now, it's a very complicated discussion to, to know, well, how what was, was the covenant at Mount Sinai really a covenant of works? No, not really, but just suffice it to say this evening, congregation, that Paul sees the covenant at Mount Sinai as a picture of the covenant of works. That if you are going to have God's favor, if you are going to have God's smile upon you, those three Ps have to be in place. Perfect, perpetual obedience to every command of God. That is what it means to be in Adam. It's what it means to be under the law. Now, there's other verses that Paul gives the terms of this covenant. Look with me on the outline at Galatians 3 and verse 10. By the way, the, the all capital letters there is, is uh, the NASB editor's way of showing that it's quoting a text from the Old Testament. I know we often equate capital letters with shouting, but this is, this is a quotation from the Old Testament, so don't, that's, that's not mine doing. But anyways, in Galatians 3 and verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. There you see the inexorable demand of the covenant of works. That for those people who are under the law, or as Paul says here, as are of the works of the law. In other words, they hope to earn God's favor by law-keeping, by keeping commandments. Are you under that kind of a law, says Paul? 
Here are the terms of that covenant. Listen carefully now. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Again, you see those P's, right? Perfect obedience. All things written in the book of the law to perform them. That is the language of the covenant of works. And now in Galatians 3, verse 12, just a few verses later, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Now, this is not quite as clear as the previous verse, but I can paraphrase this. However, the law, that is, trying to earn God's favor by the law, is not like the way of earning God's favor by faith. Okay, if I can kind of paraphrase it that way. However, earning God's favor by way of the law or being under the covenant of works is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them, in other words, the person who's under that covenant, who's under that law, shall live by them. In other words, shall live before God, shall spiritually live and flourish before God. Those are the terms, my friends, of the covenant of works. Those are hard terms. Those are hard terms. And the penalty is given us then as well. We have it in Genesis 2, but many times also repeated in the New Testament that if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or if you commit any transgression against God's law, you must die. And my friends, this is what is given us then in the catechism as why did Christ have to suffer death? Well, let me say something about that under the third point here. Under the third point, under what covenant is Jesus? Under what covenant is Jesus? And this will enable us then to answer that question that the catechism has, the catechism has posed to us. But if you turn with me to Galatians 4 and verse 4, we read the, the astonishing news, my friends. Galatians 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now there we see, my friends, the truth that we're trying to understand this evening. That we as human beings are born into this world under the terms of Adam's covenant. We are under the law. God demands from us perfect, perpetual, personal obedience. And he never relaxes the demands of his law. He never says, well, I'll, I'll overlook this. No. Those three Ps are inexorable. In other words, they never can be compromised or softened or rounded off a little bit. God demands absolute perfection in that covenant under which we are born. But now, my friends, the astonishing truth, and this, of course, is at the heart of the gospel that we profess, is that Jesus Christ was born of a woman, and furthermore, he was born under our covenant. He entered into those terms, my friends. He took upon himself the terms of that covenant. That's what we're taught in Galatians 4 and verse 4. He took on himself both the demands of that covenant, what it required in terms of perfect obedience, but also the penalty. 
And this explains to us why Jesus must die. Because the terms of the covenant under which he operated and under which he lived demanded death for every transgression. And that's why Jesus had to die. Now, Jesus was not under our covenant by birth. He chose voluntarily to come under our covenant, to come into our covenant, to subject himself to the terms of the covenant of works. And that's why he had to die. And my friends, that's why I say that really these last three sermons on the catechism all have the same theme. Because now we see Jesus dying, suffering the penalty of death, which we deserve. The covenant calls for death for every transgressor. And Jesus came, voluntarily places himself under our covenant. And that leads me then to the fourth point there, a new and better covenant. A new and better covenant. Because this brings us then to the terms of the covenant of grace. We are not born into the covenant of grace, my friends. We're born under the covenant of works. But by the grace of God, we can be brought under the terms of a new and better covenant. And in a sense, this new and better covenant isn't even really a different covenant completely. There's still the covenant of works. God still doesn't relax his demands for perfect, perpetual obedience. But now another one steps into our place. A substitute steps into our place. And we are able to meet the demands of the covenant of works as we are in him. You might say, my friends, that the covenant of grace calls for us to get behind Jesus. You know, and we, I think it was the call to worship tonight, we talked about Jesus being the author and the perfecter of our faith, right? He endured. No, it wasn't the author and perfecter. He was the, um, it was in Hebrews. It said he was the, It said, uh, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And my friends, when we get into Christ, we then have everything that he has accomplished. You might say that everything that he has accomplished is imputed to be to us. It is reckoned to be ours. Let me ask you this question that's also on the outline there. How to meet the demands of the covenant we are under? The terms of our covenant call for perfect, perpetual obedience. Well, my friends, you can't meet the terms of that covenant by trying, by law-keeping, by trying to dot every I and cross every T. That will end in death, says Paul many times. But there is a way, and that is to get into Christ. Do you remember that verse I quoted some time ago? Just as in Adam all died. Well, what's the rest of that verse? So in Christ shall all be made alive. And so, my friends, this then is the terms of the covenant of grace. That God will allow, that God will call and summon us even, to believe in Christ, to take refuge into him, 
And by that faith, we are joined to him. And so his perfect obedience to the covenant of works, the covenant he came under, is reckoned to be ours. And his enduring of the penalty of that covenant is also reckoned to be ours. Again, theologians have words for these. We talked about the active obedience of Christ. My friends, the active obedience of Christ is his obedience to the terms of the covenant of works. Because he obeys every jot and tittle of God's law perfectly, perpetually. There's also Christ's passive obedience, right? By which he endured the penalty of the covenant of works. In the day that you eat from it, you must surely die. And why did Christ have to die? Because the covenant he was under called for death. Just like I had to pay the ticket when I went through the stop sign, the prescribed punishment, whatever it may have been. So Christ, under the covenant and under which he came, had to pay the penalty, not for his own sins, but for the sins of all those who were in him. Now, my friends, this is the, this is the, this is the covenant theology that the Reformed churches glory in. And there's a reason why we glory in this. Because it puts Christ at the center, doesn't it? That is the beauty, my friends, of Reformed Covenant theology. It stakes everything on Jesus Christ. He is the champion that goes before us. What does it mean to be saved? Very simply, my friends, it means to be in Christ. It means to be in Christ. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith? What, is, what did Paul mean when he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved? Well, he meant to get into Christ. To come under the covenant, you might say, that God made with Jesus Christ, that glorious covenant of grace, which is the only way we can fulfill the terms of the covenant of works. God does not take away the covenant of works. No, on the contrary, Christ fulfills the term. He perfectly obeys the terms of the covenant of works in our place. I move to my application, my friends, here. Application, my first application. What Jesus did for us. And like I said, my friends, as Reformed people, that's even the name of our church, isn't it? Covenant United Reformed Church. We glory in the doctrine of the covenants. Not all churches have the same emphasis on the covenants as, as our Reformed churches do. Uh, many churches will, will speak much more about the specific covenants that God made, for instance, with Abraham and with David, right? And, and with this uh, people, in the, the prophets talk about uh, covenants, right? The covenant that God made with Noah and at Mount Sinai. But as Reformed people, my friends, we step back and we see the big picture that all those individual covenants that God made with specific people or groups of people in the Bible are all just manifestations. They're all just chapters in the larger book of God's covenant of grace that he makes in, with us in Christ. All of those, and, and God's covenant of grace, you might say, is his answer for the violations of the covenant of works. And again, my friends, the beauty of this is it puts at the very center of, our, of, all, of all of our religion, Jesus Christ. Everything depends on him. We read from the Psalms today, 
write about the secret of God's covenant that God makes known to his people. Well, my friends, I I would submit to you that the secret of God's covenant is that we fail. And all our law-keeping fails. And all our attempts to meet the terms of the covenant of works fails and ends in our own death. But happy day, my friends, that very, the very end of our own law-keeping brings us to the feet of Christ. What did Paul say in Romans 10? For the end of the law is Christ. In other words, the end of our law-keeping brings us to the feet of Jesus. Because it's the only way, my friends, we can meet the demands of God's covenant of works. Everything centers in Christ. And that's why this is, this is the flowering of Reformed theology. And I, and I don't hesitate to say that this is our boast. We glory in the doctrine of the covenants. Because it puts Christ as our champion. Christ as our savior. He pays the penalty for us. And he performs the terms of the covenant that we're under. And therefore, we can go free. We can enjoy God's covenant of grace and all the blessings of it. Because Christ endured the covenant of works. Because he came under our covenant. I put these two quotes on the outline, my friends. Because they are from men in the past who have, who have made this point And... In many respects, I think it, they, they are enlightening quotes to help us to understand this truth. The first is from Thomas Boston, a Scottish Presbyterian theologian. And he writes, how then is the second covenant a covenant of grace? And he says, in respect of Christ, it was most properly and strictly a covenant of works. In that he made a proper, real, and full satisfaction in behalf of the elect. But in respect of them... In other words, in respect of the elect, it is purely a covenant of richest grace. Inasmuch as God accepted the satisfaction from a surety or a substitute, which he might have demanded from them. But he provided the surety himself and gives all to them freely for his sake. My friends, that's so beautiful, isn't it? What What a precious truth that is, that we get a covenant of grace. Because he got a covenant of works. Now that shows you the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. He gets the terms of our covenant of works. We get a covenant of grace. In him, in our champion, in our substitute, in our surety, we get grace. Because he answered all the demands of the covenant of works in our place. Again, the theme of all these sermons is the same, isn't it? The innocent in place of the guilty. It's just a different conceptual framework, you might say. And then Jonathan Edwards, an American Presbyterian. If we speak of the covenant God has made with man, stating the condition of eternal life, God never made but one, that is but one covenant with man, to wit, or this is it, the covenant of works. Notice what Edwards says there. He says, strictly speaking, there's really only one covenant. There's simply God's covenant of works, which never yet was abrogated, or taken away, but as a covenant stands in full force to all eternity without the failing of one tittle. The covenant of grace is not another covenant made with man upon the abrogation of this, that is, upon the abrogation of the covenant of works, but a covenant made with Christ to fulfill it. And for this end came Christ into the world 
to fulfill the law or covenant of works for all that receive him. Now, my friends, I, we should think about two covenants. I know Jonathan Edwards there is, re, is taking it down to just one covenant, but you get his point, right? There are still two covenants, and Paul very clearly always speaks of these two ways, right? That there's the works, the merit, the law-based way, right? And there's the grace way. But what Edwards is pointing out is, what, is the truth I've been trying to communicate, right? That the covenant of grace is God's answer to the covenant of works and our failure to be able to perform those conditions. That is the covenant of grace. Christ in our place. He gets the covenant of works. We get covenant grace. My friends, I want to take you to the last day in my second point of application. I want to take you to the judgment day. That day, my friends, when the trumpet will sound and God will summon all people, the wicked and the righteous together, to his judgment seat. And what's going to happen on that day, my friends, is God is going to unfurl, as it were, the terms of the covenant of works. He's going to open that up for us. And anyone who has even the least transgression of that covenant will be sent away into eternal condemnation. My friends, the glory of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ steps in. He does it now already by faith, but then in reality, in actuality, he will step forward and say, no, my obedience for this man, for this woman. And God will look at the obedience of Jesus Christ, as it were. May I represent it this way to you this this evening? And point by point, line by line, perfect, perpetual and personal obedience without the least transgression. And so even though our conscience accuses accuses us, my friends, of having sinned against God a thousand times, when we stand before God on that day, God will deal with us. He will treat with us on the terms of the covenant of grace. Now, my friends, this is for those who are believers. This is for those who have taken refuge in Christ. It is not for all people. It is only for those who are joined to Christ, who come under the covenant of grace in Christ, who come under his covenant. Well, I shouldn't say his covenant because the covenant that Christ has to face is the covenant of works. But for us, it's the covenant of the richest grace, isn't it? Because on that day, point by point, line by line, Christ will have obeyed every jot and tittle of the law of God perfectly. And that is now reckoned to us. That is what happens already here in time when we believe in Christ. And there, my friends, we, we, we will might say, experience the reality and the glory of what took place in our life when we first believed in Jesus. We will see the covenant of grace answered and kept perfectly line by line, every jot and tittle. Furthermore, when our transgressions come up, my friends, and the penalty that our covenant demands for that breaking of God's law, there will be blood there. There will be the death of Jesus Christ there. And Christ can in, Christ can now say to God the Father, these are my children. 
I suffered the penalty that they bear, and they go free. Even on the terms of the covenant of works, I obeyed the law perfectly, and I took their penalty. And therefore they, yeah, then the God the Father may say, come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom that is prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. You see why, my friends, I say that this theology of the covenants puts Christ at the center. It is uniquely a Christ-honoring truth. It puts Christ at the center of all we do. Do you remember what the children said here on Christmas Day? Children, you remember what you said here? That verse you, you gave us? Thanks be to God for his unspeakable, or I think they said indescribable, gift. My friends, do you understand that verse a little more fully this evening? What Christ has done for us by way of covenant. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable, for his indescribable gift. That's why we talk, my friends, in our churches of Christ-centered preaching. Christ-centered living. Christ-centered everything. He's at the center of it all. It's not just an expression, my friends. It's not just a a meme or a word that we just say because it's kind of Christian talk. No, my friends, there's a theology behind that. A beautiful, rich theology of the innocent for the guilty. I close the sermon, my friends, by, by quoting from this hymn that we sang uh, at the, before the sermon. We sang 188. I want to draw your attention to these words in this beautiful, beautiful hymn. In 188, we started out in verse 1 saying, Oh Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. But then we came to verse 2. And this is in the life and experience of grace, my friends, in the life of God's people, in the life of all God's children, because we come to that point in our life where we say, Oh Jesus, thou hast promised to all who follow thee. Thou hast promised. You see, my friends, it becomes now less about what I will do for Jesus and what Jesus has done for me in my place. And on that rock, on that ground, we take our stand. Oh, Jesus, thou hast promised to all who follow thee that where thou art in glory, there shall thy servant be. And with that truth, we can continue to sing, and Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. Oh, how our life ought to be a life of worship, my friends when we see what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in our place. We should fall on our faces before him and worship our Savior for all that he has done in our place. Let us pray. Lord, we fall on our faces before you this evening because we are astonished, O Lord, at your grace and at your mercy towards lost sinners. And for the last three weeks, Lord, we've been meditating upon this truth. The innocent for the guilty. And here we see, Lord, that you were executed on the, cross of, on, the, on the cross of Calvary because the terms of the covenant said the soul that sins must surely die and cursed is everyone who continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And so you were executed on the cross of Calvary and you were laid in the grave so to prove that you really had died and that you really were dead And so to seal to us the gospel truth 
that the covenant of works has been satisfied in every point. It's every jot and tittle has been answered by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we declare this evening that we desire to be in Christ. We desire to get into him by a true faith. Lord, help us never to miss this all-important fact in our life. But grant that this evening, Lord, for the first time or by renewal, we would say, Jesus, thou hast promised. And that we would rest our life and stake all our salvation upon what Christ has done on our behalf. Lord, please remember us then. Return us safely to our homes. Grant that these thoughts might continue with us in the coming week. And that we might follow you, O God, O Jesus, to the end of our life. Declaring ourselves to be Christians, to be partakers of Jesus Christ, and to be followers of him. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnal then, in the red hymnal, to number 410. Number 410. Christian hearts in love united search to know God's holy will. Let his love in us ignited more and more our spirits fill. Christ the head and we his members. We reflect the light. He is Christ the master. We disciples. He is ours and we are his. And what follows in the three verses of number 410 in the red hymnal.
Receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.